Hi, it's Noah Becker. I'm actually hosting my own podcast. I've had a lot of lovely guest hosts. Stephen Wozniak has guest hosted recently. Coco Dole. Several other people have hosted this podcast. Well, I'm here now, and I'm bringing in some stuff from old school White Hot Magazine podcast. Earlier episodes, I've sourced audio from the internet, and tonight I'm going to be your internet guide, and we're getting some audio of Peter Doig doing a nearly one-hour artist talk at a museum in Europe. I hope you enjoy it here on the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast with your host, Noah Becker. Uh, program. It's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Peter Doig as our guest this evening. Thank you. Um, uh, Peter, Peter, Peter is a man of, of many different places. It's very hard to uh, put his uh, biography into a very sort of sweet nutshell. He was born in Edinburgh in Scotland grew up between Trinidad and Canada, where his father sort of took the family for, because of his work. Uh, he lived between Montreal, Quebec, and Toronto. And in 1979, uh, he moved back to Europe, to London, to study painting, uh, two different art schools, uh, Wimbledon and St. Martin's, and went back to Canada for a couple of years, came back to London, finished off his studies at Chelsea, and graduated in 1990 and began exhibiting regularly pretty soon after that. Um, was nominated for the Turner Prize in 1994, uh, became a trustee of the Tate Gallery soon afterwards, and in the year 2000, he was invited for an artist residency in Trinidad, back in Trinidad, where he went with uh, his great friend and fellow artist Chris Afili, and took to it and decided in 2002 to move back there and make it uh, his primary residence. Um, he has held a teaching position at the Fine Arts Academy in Dusseldorf since 2005 and has continued to teach long after many people in his position probably would have given up. Uh, and just to finish off the biography, there's a quote from a British critic who I normally disagree with everything that he writes but I happen to agree with this quote. And it goes, amid all the nonsense, the imposters, the rhetorical bullshit and trash that pass for art in the 21st century, Peter Doig is a jewel of genuine imagination, sincere work and humble creativity. His art will last. Which is a big statement to make in a building like this. Um, but it's great to have you here, Peter. Thank you very much for coming. Um, Many of the talks that you give um, accompany exhibitions that you're having in, in I'm going to move this around so I can look at you a little better. Many of the, ex many of the talks that you give accompany exhibitions that you're having, having, having or take place at the very least in museums of modern art. This is a rather different setting this evening. Um, we are working on a project together which we'll talk about um, a little bit later, but I wanted really to begin this evening by talking a little bit about where we are, this, this museum, this collection, this building. Um, 
it's often said by critics and scholars when they're writing about your work that your paintings remind people of art from another time. They manage to remain both contemporary and speak to a sort of tradition of painting at the same time. We've walked through the museum now on two separate occasions, about a year apart, and we've paused in front of certain pictures and we've talked about what you find interesting in them. And I guess to begin with, I'd really just like to ask you how you approach, how you approach collections like this. How do you feel to be in a building like this? And it's a very difficult question to answer, but do you consider your work to be in some form of conversation with this great swathe of, of sort of art that we have in a building like this? Um, probably not really. Um, I think that um, my relation to a museum like this really is, um, I guess, to do with um, attraction really. I'm not necessarily looking for um, like the greatest hits of this museum, although, although obvious, there are obvious ones here that um, everyone knows and um, I'm drawn to as well. But um, I'm interested in looking at, um, you know, effect in painting, um, whoever it may be. I mean, you yourself um, introduced me to quite a number of paintings on the first visit that I wasn't particularly familiar with, Greggio, is that pronounced? <laughs> and um, I was very excited to see those and to see um, the way they were made. So I think that, um, yes, of course, Caravaggio, um, Bruegel, Titian, um, but also just lots of other things, things that surprise you, things, that, things by people I don't know. Was there, a, was there a kind of definable moment during your studies or the early part of your career where you felt um, you passed beyond a sort of intimidation of certain big historical figures and you felt able to encroach on them and begin to assimilate? Was there a sort of moment where you began to look at this type of art as a resource for your work? Well, it's interesting because when I went to art school in London in the early 80s, um, we had to spend a week in the National Gallery. That was part of our, the three things we had to do that were compulsory, um, other than just make paintings right from the beginning, were a week in the National Gallery, a week drawing still life, a week drawing the life model. And um, <clears throat> a few of my fellow students never left the National Gallery. They spent the three years in the National Gallery making copies and versions of... Um, I made a version of a um, Bronzino painting, um, I remember. Um, but um, I didn't really continue that, you know, that sort of fascination really like others did. And when, um, it's funny, I was, I walked, I found some notes that I had made when I walked through your Tate Britain show from a few years ago. And when I, when I think of artists who come to mind when I look at your work, I made a little list. You know, Daumier, Courbet, Rousseau, Bonnard, Munch, Matisse, Beckman, Hopper. They're kind of predominantly 19th century or early 20th century. And I just wondered if there was something about that particular period, which is historical but not too historical, which somehow feels more available to you or accessible to you, or whether it's simply the, they are the first modern artists and therefore they feel... Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, that they're the first modern artists, the first 
a lot of them were the first artists that um, looked at the modern world through, you know, various lenses and um, photography, I guess. Um, experimented more freely with the use of material, use of color. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think naturally I was attracted to, to that rather than the, the more distant past. Other, other artists in here that you really struggle with still? I mean, F Lucian Freud thought that Raphael was just the worst artist who'd <laughs> ever lived. And yeah. I, my, my struggle is Rubens. I've tried and tried and tried. And I, yeah. I'm so excited because we're doing a big Rubens show this autumn. And I hope it's going to be my moment to actually understand. But is there anyone in here that you, any of the sort of greats that, where you just don't find a way in? Um, I, just, I just think there's so many that I don't really feel, um, I feel intimidated by really because they're, 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 you know, such masters as it were. You know, the draftsmanship's so incredible. Um, it seems almost impossible what they did really for me to ever sort of in a way get close to it really. And I'm not really that interested in getting that close to it. Um, I might be interested in a sort of a facsimile of aspects, but, um, so I do find a lot of, um, of the work by the masters um, intimidating. I might find someone like Bruegel more accessible because I, I find the type of drawing that's involved in, in his work, um, it seems really quite real to me and sort of almost amateurish in a sense, but to taken to a very, very high level of, of, of finish because he's a great painter as well as a... I would say a slightly awkward draftsman, or he's, at least he's got his own. Um, his his style of drawing is 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 absolutely his own. You've actually um, set me up perfectly because I, this um, this is a gallery just over here, which uh, contains twelve paintings by Peter Bruegel the Elder, painted within a ten-year period from 1559 to 1569 when he died. And we spent a lot of time in there last time you were here. We spent a lot of time in there today. Um, I found an old copy of Freeze magazine from a number of years ago where they did a survey of artists and critics and curators, and they asked everyone to choose five artworks from history that they would preserve were the world to be burning down. And this was one of the ones... This was actually the most popular painting in the entire survey. Um, and it was a painting that you chose and we spent a lot of time looking at it today. Do you remember when you, um, do you remember when you encountered Bruegel for the first time? I think I first encountered Bruegel um, in the real was in Berlin, when I first went to Berlin in the very early 80s, in the, um, in the museum there. Um, and I'd obviously seen um, paintings reproduction. There was a small crucifixion too in, in London, I think in the Courtauld that was stolen no longer is there. Um, but it wasn't until I came to Vienna maybe 20 odd years ago that I saw these paintings. But this is a painting, um, when I got interested in making paintings um, using you know, the idea of snow, um, this is a painting I obviously looked at. It's funny you talk about reproductions. Bacon always said that he only found the old masters accessible through reproductions, through postcards. He would. He claimed that he made all of his popes from a postcard of the great Velasquez and the Doria Pamphili, but he never saw the real thing, and he didn't ever want 
the pressure of standing in front of the real thing. He just wanted a torn out page from a catalog or something. It sort of made it more. Because you, so I guess, because you can invent, invent the surface for your own, yeah. in your own way, I guess. Yeah. Um, one thing that I find really fascinating about Bruegel is that on the face of it, people, people think of a painting like this as being wonderfully reassuring. He's painting, he's one of the first painters of everyday life, one of the, we sort of invented this genre of genre painting. And there's something normal, there's a sense of tranquility. That's the sort of first burn most people get from Bruegel. But when you begin to spend time with them, for me at least, a completely conflicting emotion comes in very quickly soon afterwards, which is something completely sinister, something completely dark, something completely unstable, and this reassuring normality, tranquility, is completely vanished about two minutes into looking at the pictures. It reminds me of Giorgio de Chirico a little bit, who paints these, I mean, with an urban equivalent, but scenes which look sort of relatively harmless, and then you begin to spend time with them, and they're completely sort of creepy. I often feel something, we talked about this picture of yours today. This is a painting called Grande Riviere from 2001, 2002. And I've had the, the chance to stand in front of this picture a couple of times, and the scene feels completely recognizable. There's a plot. We've got identifiable characters. This awkward old horse on a beach surrounded by vultures. But at the same time, it's completely foreign. Uh, it's full of loose ends and half-related things. And as a result, the whole pitching, picture is very unstable. Somehow. It's not still. Is this sort of in-betweenness something that you look for in your work? Well, I, I suppose... Um... It's interesting seeing this after looking at the Bruegel. It seems very, my painting seems very unfinished. <laughs> my paintings seem very unfinished. Um, I think he was able to achieve a level of finish that um, is very enviable and also you know, still create an incredible mood over the whole composition and um, a lasting mood too. You can see the painting hundreds and hundreds of times and it uh, doesn't go away. I suppose that is something that um, one hopes to achieve, is, is, is um, to create a, some sort of atmosphere, mood that doesn't go away with you know, subsequent lookings. First of all, yourself, then whoever else may see it. Um, yes, there is a narrative. Yes, there is, um, you know, I was referring to specific things I'd seen and um, that I found interesting and maybe things that I'd found, found quite haunting or you know, <clears throat> slightly morbid in a way, but um, the most important thing, I suppose, in, in realizing the painting and um, the subject of the painting is to try and create an atmosphere, whatever that is. We were looking at this cow in a Bruegel painting today, one of the seasons, and it's just the, one of the most awful cows ever <laughs> painted, but it's utterly believable. And I'm not saying that your horse here is so terrible, but you... <laughs> You, you, in interviews you've given, you really belittle your own draftsmanship, I've noticed. You, you say that it's often the, the, the sort of most obviously figurative element of a work that takes you the most time and you struggle with, and, and yet it's, it's, utterly, it, it's utterly convincing and it fits at the same time. And it's, it's, I mean, there's good awkwardness and there's bad awkwardness, and this feels very much like good awkwardness, if that's not too kind of stupid a thing to say. 
Well, I was glad to see the cow <laughs> in the Bruegel painting. And yes, it was a, a bad cow, but maybe that's an example of, um, in a way, there's lots of elements in his paintings that are, are slightly off, but the whole thing works yeah. together. Um, <laughs> one thing that we spoke a little bit about today, um, this is a, a really wonderful, huge painting. It's about three and a half meters across. This is a painting called Echo Lake from 1998. Uh, this often happens in your works, that you have these incredibly sort of timeless scenes, and then there's a single sort of object in there which anchors it in today. So the police car and the policeman is like when you have a wonderful alpine scene and there's a snowboarder which kind of drags you back into where we are. When I've stood in front of this painting before, I find myself in a kind of push and pull constantly. I find myself stepping back to see what you've painted and then I feel myself stepping forward to see how you've painted it. And it's almost as if there's a wonderful book that's just come out on Bruegel. Uh, by a guy called Joseph Kerner, an American art historian. And he talks about Bruegel deliberately mating, making pictures to be seen from two different vantage points. A sort of panoramic view. He gives the example of um, this picture, Children's Games, where you're obliged to step back to take in the sort of totality. And Bruegel was great friends with all of these map makers in Antwerp who taught him how to lay out as much information as possible on a picture plane and still make it readable. And then you have to go in to see the actual detail and then zoom out again. And when I look at a picture like this of yours, it, is, is this idea of getting lost, you've spoken quite a lot about this idea of getting lost in a picture, disoriented, physically lost in a picture. Could you maybe speak a little bit about the, that idea of disorientation in your work? This painting was actually inspired by um, a painting by Edvard Munch called Ashes, which is actually a, a painting of a, a woman with red hair with her hands up, holding her head, um, looking out across a lake that you only see the foreground of. But in a sense, the idea of the lake is suggested and places of your back. And I think I tried to um, echo that. <laughs> um, also, um, the foreground I also took almost color-wise from this particular monk painting. The, the face of the figure is quite um, developed, but also quite um, vacant, so I think that um, it kind of draws you in. It's almost like a kind of siren in a way, or that was the idea. And um, I don't know, there was enough, enough I felt there had to be enough information to draw you in, but also that you could actually see it from afar. Does that answer? Yeah, yeah, no, you, uh, you've, uh, I didn't really have a follow-up to that. I mean, when, this, is, this was an incredibly important painting in your career. Um, this is a painting called Blotter from 1993. When we talk about Bruegel, there's lots of other things which I find really interesting. You, you, have a, you talked about the policeman's face being quite developed, but that feels to me like quite a rarity. You have quite a way of often populating your paintings with people with quite, in creating mood without any sort of decipherable expression. So you lure us in, but actually when I go in, I'm looking at the different way you're laying paint down on the canvas rather than, and Bruegel often just has, I mean, he'll even use carnival masks deliberately almost to kind of shield um, 
to completely remove any sort of human expression from it. Or you, you, you opt for the silhouette sometimes. It's a, it's a sort of... Um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's... Most people, most artists, when they're trying to create mood, almost the first thing they would use to engage in mood construction would be the facial expression. So, I, th I mean, I, th I think it's I think amazing. this was, what was more important for me in this painting was the body language, really. Um, and it's actually pretty nondescript, really. But I mean, except the fact that I know the person very well and I know the way they stand and um, that was important to me. And uh, I think important also for the atmosphere I wanted for the painting, really, something that was actually kind of contemplative and still, almost bland, really. Um, and yet the painting is very, very active. Yeah. The painting was, you know, in a way, the actual painting was maybe meant to represent more the state of mind, whereas the actual attitude was, um, was quite still and quite quiet. This is, um, this is one of my favorite paintings of yours. It's called Figure in a Mountain Landscape from 1997. And you also have a lot of pictures in which figures are seen from the back and they almost, they almost become a sort of key part of the landscape themselves. The figure becomes the landscape, the landscape becomes the figure. And Bruegel was also one of the very first people ever to paint the backs of people. There's full paintings just populated by the backs of people and it's uh, it's completely fascinating. This is a picture which we talked about today. Um, this is Ski Jacket from 1994 in the collection of Tate today. And this is a picture where I always think of Bruegel, every single time. Um, his snow is so colorful. I mean, it's, it's more monochrome than this, but um, was, he, was an artist like that very much at the forefront of your mind when you were painting? I mean, obviously this is referring back to Canada and, and, and childhood and so on, but was there a, was it, I mean, winter and snow as a sort of recurrent motif in your work comes back to something well, in I the history I'd, of painting? I'd, resist, I'd resisted, up until this point, this point in time um, as a painter, I'd kind of resisted um, painting things that I, I like doing. <laughs> like, um, well, some of the things I like doing, like leisure activities, like skiing, being in the snow, those sorts of things. I thought they would be far, you know, far too whimsical um, to be kind of serious subject for a painting. And um, in fact, this painting came about because I saw a photograph in a newspaper. And yes, I was reminded of um, Bruegel, all these little figures, all these kind of beginner skiers struggling to sort of find their feet in the snow, but also um, I was also kind of reminded of um, oriental painting, um, the way that, and actually Bruegel does the same thing, whereas you, there's focus from almost top to bottom, really, side to side. And um, that's, that's, where I, that's where that came from. I mean, it's easy to look at this now, and it's become quite an iconic painting, but 1994, this must have shocked. This must have been deeply unfashionable. This must have shocked. I mean, this is when, you know, people are cutting up cows and, you know, and you're painting a winter landscape. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I hardly... Uh, did you get a hard time from people for... Hardly shocking, but... <laughs> but um, maybe um, people wondered why. Why someone would be interested in making paintings like this or making paintings that in a way, refer to these things, or <laughs> soft paintings, or, you know, maybe the idea of a beautiful painting. Um, 
I wouldn't say shocking, but I would say sort of, um, you know, people maybe scratch their heads and wonder why, um, why someone would spend their time doing that. I remember once hearing you say that you were invited for a group exhibition and people were sort of almost reluctant to be sharing the same room as you because of some of these... Was it this sort of time? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, it was just before this time. Um, and I think that um, it's hard to, it's hard to um, remember what it was like, but, I mean, painting was very unfashionable and um, particularly painting that depicted things and uh, maybe paintings that were where the subject was construed as being, um, I don't know, not, not hardcore or serious or whatever that may be. This is, this is actually my favorite of all these winter scenes. This is a painting called Coburg, uh, three plus one more, from the same year as Ski Jacket. And this is, in some ways, the most sort of impenetrable of all of them because you actually have this sort of device of the screen. Um, Bruegel, wrote about uh, one of his paintings, the painting in London of the Three Kings, where it's actually snowing as what he was after with having actual physical snow falling rather than just lying on the ground was to make, uh, anchor the painting in the present <laughs> rather than to make it et eternal. It's, it's performative somehow, um, which I think is what's so, what's so interesting about this piece. This brings us on to the project that we're doing together. Um, in about uh, a year from now, we're going to be presenting a group exhibition here in the Kunsthistorisches, um, which will uh, bring in 25 extraordinary artworks from 1800 to today. So the period that we're missing as a museum. So for about three months only, we will be a museum that goes through to the present day. And it begins in the 19th century with some quite well-known artists, Turner, and Cezanne and Manet, some less well-known artists like Wilhelm Hammershoy, uh, and it continues up through the 20th century with Marcel Duchamp, Claude Cahoon, uh, Mark Rothko, Ronnie Horn, Steve McQueen, and one thing that we've shied, we talked about this today, but one thing we've shied away from doing in this museum over the last couple of years is doing any direct juxtapositions of old and new. Lucian Freud didn't want his work to hang next to old things, but he wanted it to be near, in the vicinity of. Uh, but next year, we've chosen these 25 objects precisely because of their affinities with objects in the collection. So the exhibition will be hung in the Egyptian galleries, in the Greek and Roman galleries, in the Kunstkammer, and in the picture gallery. It's going to be an exhausting exhibition to visit for everyone. Um, and to kind of finish the show, we've commissioned three living artists to create new works for the exhibition. Uh, the photographer, Catherine Opie. We have a lot of women in the show. I think half the show is women, which is unheard of in this institution. Uh, we have a lot of media which didn't exist when this collection was being film and photography. Uh, we have artists from not, not from Europe which is also something that we don't really have here. We have artists from Indonesia and Pakistan and Israel. Um, and we've invited three artists to produce new works for the show. Kathy Opie is responding to the history of German portraiture. Uh, Kerry James Marshall is painting a, his own version of Tintoretto's Susanna and the Elders. And I gave you a choice of, I think, a dozen artists or so, and you chose um, Bruegel. And 
without sort of giving too much away, could you maybe speak a little bit about how you're approaching this? Because this is, this is a pretty perfect gallery. And we walked around today thinking, how on earth do you land in here? And how do you also, how do you paint a piece which is, or do you just simply not think too much about it? Um, how are you going about this? Um, well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, it's in, yeah, it's, it's obviously a, an incredible um, challenge and honor as well to be asked. Um, I don't know if I can put a painting in that room. Everyone knows the room upstairs. Maybe it will go in the, um, the little chamber next door. Um, the Bruegel paintings are quite small, um, I think. Um, I'm not, don't think I'm particularly successful at making paintings of that size. So I'd have to make some, I'm making something bigger. Um, I've already started it. Um, I mean, in many ways, it refers to the winter paintings, um, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's um, how, does one, how does one do it? I mean, what, what level of, of, of finish do you get up to? I mean, his paintings are so finished. Uh, my paintings are, are not. Um, there's so much detail in his paintings right down from the foreground to the background. Um, Mine operate, maybe operate in similar ways, but they're very differently painted. I don't know. It's, um, it's a surprise. I mean, it's, you, you, maybe I'll fall flat on my face, but it's worth trying. I mean, the whole show might fall flat on its face because we've never done these kind of, it may just go up in flames and be the worst exhibition that anyone's ever seen because we're putting Rothko with Rembrandt. We're putting uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres with Tullio Lombardo downstairs. So it could either be amazing or just ghastly. Um, one thing that we spoke about today, you mentioned once that when you painted a series of works in Trinidad in a particular type of light where colors register differently, this is a vibrancy to, the, to, the, to daily life there, and you brought them over to London for an exhibition at Tate, the palette suddenly registered as something much oh, you know, hallucinogenic almost. How you're, this is a different situation, but you're dealing with paintings which are 450 years old with very muted tones. It's sort of, that room feels very autumnal. Um, is that something you take into account when you're, or can you not allow that to be taken into account because it'll lead you in a wrong direction? Or? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think that um, aspects of the um, the, f the level of f focus and color that actually is, I think, very intense in Bruegel, I'll have to take on, take as a challenge, really, because otherwise, um, I think my paintings could look, end up looking like sort of muted wallpaper, and I wouldn't want that to be. <laughs> so I'll have to, um, I'll have to, um, yeah, attempt it. I mean, I think I have made some paintings that have got very high, high color and high contrast in the past, not, not so much recently, but, um, I think I'll have to go back to, to that, really. Um, one thing that really, uh, one thing that we're going to get to some newer works later. I realize that I'm showing a lot of older works tonight. One thing that really intrigues me about your work, whenever I see it, is you have a sort of propensity to very deliberately flirt with danger or with what 
people might consider to be things that are almost taboo, and you flirt with them just long enough for it to be a sort of lure, um, and for this awkwardness that we were talking to sort of creep in. I've got a few examples. There's the choice of subject matter, which we've talked a little bit about before. There's your interest in what might be perceived as the romantic or the nostalgic. Um, your, we talked today about beauty and the notion of beauty, the notion of the decorative or, or using the deck, using the decorative. I mean, these are, these are words which people, people find almost dirty words. You dismiss something as decorative, as traditional or something. And I, I find your engagement with them or even your palette that you're using. I think it's, I think it's really fascinating how you stray into areas that are dangerous is the wrong word, but um, potentially leading you into problematic places just far enough for this, for this awkwardness to come in. Is that something that you're, is that just an art historian reading too much into this? Or is this, is this straying close to think? Like dec take decoration, for example, that wonderful painting, Architect's House in the Ravine. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's maybe more straightforward than that. I think maybe it's more, more just finding um, the right way to work a painting for the particular painting. And then if I find that I do that too often, I, I change. Like, I mean, with the architect's home in the ravine, um, you know, I was quite excited by this idea of creating this sort of web or this, this idea of looking through things, keeping the, the viewer away from the, um, the picture by using, you know, paint kind of similar in a way to like, maybe Pollock did it with his drips. Um, but this was actually done in a very sort of actual, sort of quite physical way. And then I found that after I made a few paintings like that, I found it was becoming a bit divisive. And I, and I would um, open up the pictures to make <laughs> something maybe like the, the other painting, um, these <coughs> which is far more, far more open um, as a challenge to me, really. So much of it is just to do with the... It comes about just during the making of the painting and um, what, what happens in the studio, really, and what happens when I um, do something and then erase it and then start again or scratch back and... Um, I don't know. It's... How long do you give a, a painting to... Do you, do you give a painting a long... Do you sit with it for a long time in the studio, go back to it... You're, I mean, you're, you're often working on several things at the same time. Well, if you put the next painting on, that one, yeah. I mean, this painting, for instance, I, I started it, and um, it very much surprised me, because I, I hadn't really made a painting like this before. Um, I started it, and I probably worked on it for about two days, and I just left it, and I left it for maybe, I don't know, eight months or so, and just did tiny little bits to it, and um, didn't really know how to finish it, but I also knew I didn't want to finish it. I didn't want to sort of really finish it. So I just ended up just adding a little bit of paint to the, the face and the hand, and then that seemed to be enough for me, really. But I think if I hadn't had that amount of time, I would have been, I would have aban either abandoned it or um, done something very different, turned it into something more. Done too much to done it. Done too much to it, maybe. You know, in retrospect, I'm glad I left it the way I did. And then I tried, I made another version of the same painting where I actually did a lot more to it. Maybe this is the more successful one. I, I think that's why I chose this one. I think it's absolutely of this whole, whole group. Um, I don't want to talk 
for any great length about the market for your works, and I know very well that you don't either. Uh, but there's one aspect of success as an artist that I am sort of curious to talk to you about. When I was younger, I lived in the house next door to Lucian Freud, and I was lucky enough to go into his studio quite often, and I had a friendship with him, and we used to exchange letters through each other's uh, letterboxes, and he kind of uh, humored me, shall we say, with my kind of annoying questions and my exam questions that I would ask him the answers to and stuff. And one day, my grandfather told me that one of his paintings was going to be sold at an auction house, and it was supposed to break the world record for a living artist, and would I like to come? So I went to an auction house for the first time in my life, and this painting by Lucien broke the world record for a living artist. I mean, it was something laughable, like five million pounds back then, but that's when that was just more money than I could even comprehend. Uh, still is, but... Um, <laughs> hope so. Um, and I thought about this all the way home. I thought not about who bought it, who sold it, this auction house with all these beautiful people. All I thought about what does Lucien think of this? And I asked my grandfather, who was driving me home, I said, you know, I want to ask him. He was just leave him alone. He said, no, I want to ask him. So I got home about 10 o'clock at night and I wrote a letter and I said, dear Lucien, I've just been at the sale of your painting do you feel A, I gave him a multiple choice question because I was a kind of arrogant little schoolboy. I said, do you feel A, vindicated that your talent has been recognized on the world stage or B, terrified because the next time you pick up a paintbrush, you've got to paint five million pounds worth of painting. Please tell me how you feel yours, Jasper. And I put it through his letterbox about 10 o'clock at night. Uh, this is someone who got out of bed at about 10 o'clock at night. And my grandfather said, you're such an idiot, you're never going to get a reply. And literally 15 minutes later, our letterbox fluttered. And this kind of letter came through the door. A brick. Yeah, brick, yeah, like petrol bomb, came through the door. And uh, for someone who had such a good grasp of composition, he had the most terrible handwriting. And it was all scrunched up into the top of the paper. And it said, I wrote it down because I found the letter the other day. Dear Jasper, thank you for your letter. In all honesty... I felt mildly indifferent, as if I had overheard that my great-aunt had been invited to breakfast by a group of cannibals. <laughs> Yours, Lucien. And I read this letter about six times, like, what does he mean? What does he mean? What does that mean? And I asked my grandfather, he's like, he's telling you he doesn't, give, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And we know he does care, because Lucien would be on the telephone to someone at the auction house getting every bid. So he really did care. But... You've spoken quite publicly about your anguish at some of the ridiculous prices that your paintings have gone for, about losing a slight sort of control over your identity and what you represent. How, my question at the end of this very long anecdote is, how do you block out the, I mean, living in Trinidad helps, but how do you block out the noise, you know? Um, I know you have telephones and newspapers and things to read about. How do you just block out the noise? Because there is a, I mean, you, you pull crowds and you're a, you're, a, you're a painter who spends time in the studio. And does it, um, how do you not let it affect you? Um, well, it sounds, sounds silly to say, but I think when you're in a studio, you, you, 
you're confronted with your work and your work only, really, and that's, that's it. And that's, you just have to get on with it. Never, it doesn't make it any easier. Probably makes you a little bit less, a little bit, hesitate a little bit more, maybe. I don't know. It did, anyway. Um, kind of coming to terms with it now um, more. Um, I suppose <coughs> block out is... Um, how do you block it out? You can't really block it out, but um, you can just try not to think about it. I mean, what else, what else can I say, really? I mean, the worrying, the worrying thing to me was um, in the local newspaper in Trinidad, um, there's about, there's three kind of like, kind of good local newspapers. There's one sort of like real rag, what do you call it, like? In, we have a few of them here yeah, as well. well in, everywhere. And <clears throat> on the front page of the, of the um, newspaper, there was a picture of my painting. This was completely out of, not in context of any auction that had just happened. It was one from, that had happened some years ago, and it just said, Paramin, which is the, the area where I live, artist sells painting for, you know, X amount of whatever it was, translated into Trinidad dollars, which is, you know, would, would you know, buy people several boats or whatever, massive boats. I don't as know. If, as if that money had gone to you. Well, I mean, just like that. And I just suddenly just thought, oh, God, people, you know, people are going to come sort of knocking at my door and, um, or worse things. I was going to say new alarm system on the house. And well, just, um, just became, I, I felt kind of worried, but um, you it kind of went, it kind of, no one ever, no one's ever approached me or anything, but um, that would be my fear or, or it affected my family. You said that you, one of the reactions that you had to this sort of development in your career was almost an instinct to try to make paintings that people wouldn't even want to buy. <laughs> Was that just... No, I discussed Because I find that really fascinating. No, I discussed it with... Um, I mean, your gallerist is here. I don't know. You know but. Well, I actually discussed it with um, Michael Werner um, shortly afterwards. And I was, you know, because it, 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 it was a phenomena, even within um, the artists in the gallery. I mean, some, some very, very, very senior artists. And he said, well, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. He said, you can make... You can try and make paintings. His, his suggestions that people won't want to buy. He said, "But you, you know, you, you'll never be able to escape it. So you just have you, all you all you can do is carry on." So, I mean, we've that. been we've been looking at pictures in a museum all day that are open to everyone. You buy a ticket, you come in here. It's wonderful when works you make are acquired directly by museums, and hopefully, your works will all one day end up in a museum. But do you? Um, I guess it's kind of easy also to lose track of them at a certain point. At the beginning, you would have known where everything was. They were going to friends or fellow artists or early collectors, and now it's sort of they somehow feel as if they disappear into an ever somehow. Well, I suppose if you know if you if, you, <clears throat> if you're an artist like myself who doesn't make so many paintings, and if you if you are offered an exhibition in a in a in a good venue, and then you know, a quarter of, your, quarter of your paintings or an eighth of your paintings or whatever, you don't know where they are or you have, no, you have no idea who owns them and you can't borrow them. That can be problematic, especially when they're um, paintings you consider to be um, some, some of your best. It would almost be like a singer who gets an offer to sing on a big stage and then can't sing the songs that they've sold to other people type thing or other people own that, that you don't own the rights to anymore. So it is, that, that is problematic. Um, one thing I'd love to talk to you a little bit about is your, is your relationship with Vienna. <laughs> um, 
you spent you've spent time here over the years. You spent a sort of slightly extended period of time. This is a painting called House of Pictures from 2000, 2002. This is a building a lot of you will recognize. It's on the Breitergasse, uh, almost opposite Hubert Winter's gallery, where the Samlung Klevan is normally uh, housed. Can you talk a little bit about Vienna, what you've been doing here over the years, and how you, how you find it here as a, as a sort of climate and place to work? Or? Well, I only worked here for one summer in, um, in an artist um, who's here tonight, who teaches at the, um, has a class at the Kunstakademie, Evan Bohatch. And it came about through my good friend, Eric Bartz, who's from Vienna. And he suggested um, that maybe I should try and work in Vienna, because I'd been in an exhibition um, at the Kunsthalle uh, called Alpenblick. I don't know if anyone remembers that, uh, curated by a gentleman called Wolfgang Kos, who um, put together, a, I thought, a very interesting exhibition about um, you know, works that reflected the Alpine, whether they be photographs, films. Anyway, so that's where my relationship with Vienna started, I guess. Um, how, how was it? To, did you, were you able to work here? It was very, very hot. I remember it was in the summer. It was like unbelievably hot. Um, spent quite a few long mornings on the Donauinsel, <laughs> either rollerblading around or swimming there. Um, and then would work in the afternoons. And um, I don't know how many paintings I finished, but I started a lot here and f took them back to London and subsequently finished them. House to Builder, um, or House of Pictures as I called it, was um, um, a picture gallery, I, th I think, nearby um, where the studio was I was working. You, I'm not sure exactly where it is geographically to here. Um, I never actually went in. It was never open. It wasn't open in the summer that I was there. But I looked in the window, and it um, seemed to have all these different paintings of different genres. And um, that very much intrigued me, along with the sort of I thought quite sort of mysterious um, signage. This is the collection which is now on exhibition at the Lower Belvedere, um, the Simon Clavan. We talked today about um, those slightly painful texts that appear in auction catalogues when your paintings are sold. And uh, with all due respect to people from auction houses who are here this evening, auction houses are trying to sell pictures when they're <coughs> writing about them, and they always use lots of comparative images, like that Bruegel, Hunters in the Snow, always pops up when a picture Klimt is someone who often is thrown out by people as, uh, as if there's some sort of affinity. This is a painting from 1902 called Buchenwald. Is, is he someone that you have looked at, you continue to look at? Did he, did he register on you at a certain point? I think, um, yeah, I mean, like late 80s, early 90s, I was, I was very interested in the kind of, you know, the broken surface of, of Klimt. Um, not, not just Klimt, I mean, lots of different artists, but, um, yeah, and um, just the strange compositions. Um, I mean, obviously, Klimt, there's a lot of breadth to what Klimt made in his life. Um, but for me, I was interested in um, his landscapes, really. I mean, I suppose I was looking at, um, you know, different devices that he used that I could sort of incorporate in my own work. I, I think this is an amazing painting. I mean, I love Klimt's landscapes almost more than... I, actually, I love Sheila's landscapes more than even his figures, which I know I'm probably going to get fired for saying uh, in this country. But, um, yeah, and, and Sheila and Kokoschka and people, did they... Did they 
come into mm. your imagination at a certain point? Not so much. I mean, of course, I appreciate them, but um, not so much. It was more, it was more um, Klimt, and particularly these Klimt's. I mean, I think the trees in, in, um, that I painted in Blotter, the birch trees, were very influenced by, by these, as much as they were by real birch trees. <laughs> I've got two more questions for you, and I just want to cycle through uh, a couple more pictures. These are just pictures which I thought I couldn't not show tonight because they're three of the pictures that I think are the most extraordinary you've done. This is a painting called Man Dressed as Bat from 2007. Um, this is a painting called uh, Black Curtain towards Monkey Island from 2004. And this is probably my favorite. I've said that about three times tonight, but this is one of my favorite pictures of yours called, um, and someone's gonna correct my German pronunciation <laughs> here. Can you say this properly? Um, probably not. I can say Gasthof. Gasthof. Yeah, we'll the call it Gasthof. Gasthof zur Muldentalsperre. Um, from 2000, 2002. And because we've seen a lot of older works, this is one of your more recent works that I think is really, really wonderful. This is Balcony, North Coast from 2013. I guess this is your deck in Trinidad or... No? Some, somewhat. Okay, somewhat. I guess I wanted to finish by basically asking you a very simple question which is probably very hard to answer. You've been painting now for almost 40 years. What, uh, what has got harder for you during that time and what has got easier? Or do you have hmm. the same struggles? I just think it goes in waves. I mean, if I think back over the last 40 years, I think there's, there's times when I feel extremely sort of full of ideas and in extremely inspired just to sort of to make things and to just to try things out. And there's other times when I feel more reticent and, and, and slower. And I think that I used, to, I used to sort of worry about that. But I actually think it's, it's just natural to me to be like that, really. I'm not someone who can just, um, you know, work fluidly every day. It doesn't come, doesn't come naturally to me. I don't have a practice like the artist you mentioned, say, Lucian Freud, who you know, has a studio, has a room, someone comes into the room, he paints them, and then someone else comes to the room at different times of the day. I, I've never, in a way, been a nine to five or, you know, 12 till midnight type artist. It's just, um, I have to be inspired to, to paint, and I have to have, I have, to have um, fresh ideas. And I don't really, um, I find if I kind of really look hard for things, it almost goes in the other direction. It's things that come to me just by, um, without me wanting to find them that are the most pertinent. And um, some of the paintings that I think I've made most recently um, that are the most pertinent to me are things that came about very unexpectedly. Um, and then it's the whole process of, of trying to figure out how to make the painting for that particular. It's pretty... Um, it's quite frustrating, really. <laughs> but once, you get into, once I get into it, then I think it's, I find it very rewarding. I, I have the feeling that you spend more time thinking about what to paint rather than actually painting. painting. Um, yeah, possibly, or just like um, not really knowing how to do it, um, <laughs> or starting something and then rejecting it. But once you get into, as I say, once I get into the, the flow of it, um, when that comes, it's, it's, it's very rewarding, and it's almost like um, that's when um, 
you get into almost like a sort of timeless zone, and that to me is um, the best bit. One final question. There's probably a hundred uh, students here this evening from the academy and from the Angavanta. You teach yourself in Dusseldorf. You're going on there tomorrow. Very hard question, but you, I think, fortunately, didn't have success at a very early point in your career. Um, you've had wonderful success since, but you, you, you had or you gave yourself time to work out what was going on, find your voice. What, what is the sort of thing you find yourself repeating to your students in Dusseldorf who are sort of in a hurry or about to graduate? Mm. How are you, uh, yeah. what would you pass on to some of these guys? Well, I don't, think, I, I, I don't think that I <clears throat> necessarily, necessarily gave myself time. I think that was just the, the, what happened. I mean, I think that if, as a 25-year-old, I'd been offered um, exhibitions, I would have probably jumped at the chance. But I, the fact of the matter was I wasn't. It didn't really come until much, much later for me. Um, and I think if I consider what I was doing in those years, I'm glad that didn't happen in retrospect. But I wouldn't, how would I have known? I have no idea what I would have made later on. Um, so I think in regards to my own students, um, I mean, depending on each, each one, they're all so different, really. I mean, some, some of them seem very ready and very mature um, and, and um, in a way should be encouraged to, if they have the opportunity to go for it. Other ones, I would just say, you know, take your time, really. It's as simple as that.